From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hospitality has been ravaged economically by COVID-19. Today, how one bar owner is trying to help? Sean Kenyon was once named the nation's best bartender. Now he's gotten a part-time meal delivery gig. For me, it's fulfilling a little bit of the hospitality, the need and want to take care of people that I have in the bars. But what he earns isn't for himself. Coming up, what he's doing with the money and why. Then, what P.E. looks like now that school's gone virtual. How low can we go? How low can we go? How low? How low can you go? Hey, hey, hey. Later in the show, how some Colorado artists are persevering. The arts help us get through the hard times. And 50 years of Earth Day, how the environmental movement is trying to become more inclusive. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Colorado eases the stay-at-home order starting Monday, little will change for bars and restaurants. Here's how Governor Jared Polis described their place as the state transitions to what he calls safer at home. Bars and restaurants and clubs and all those things and event venues are staying closed. We're hoping in this phase to have a phased-in reopening of restaurants. We don't have the date for that yet or the parameters for that yet. I mean, my own goal would be mid-May. Uh, we're hoping that they can come back. That means reduced capacity, distancing in place for the restaurants that want it, right? Obviously, curbside delivers for all of them. But those parameters around reducing the density, the additional precautions they're taking, uh, my goal would be to bring that back as soon as possible. Well, just before bars had to close and restaurants ended dine-in service, Sean Kenyon shut down his three Denver bars on his own. They'd been jam-packed in the days prior to the order. He was getting worried about the health of his employees. And so he laid them off till it's safe to work again. In the interim, Sean Kenyon, who was once named the best bartender in the country, has gotten a part-time gig, a way he says he can help the hard-hit hospitality industry. I am delivering food for other restaurants to raise money for my own staff. One of the difficulties uh, in Denver for people who are still open is finding ways to get the food to people and I'm, I'm doing my best to help out with that. With that, I'm creating an emergency fund for our staff. I mean, all of ours, we have 53 people on staff at the three bars. All of them are, are receiving unemployment right now and are doing okay. But this is like an emergency backup plan. I mean, for anyone that is in need that has rent to pay or bills to pay or whatever it is, I'm just trying to do what I can because I can't afford personally to hand out personal, you know, hand out my money, although I would. No. I could. Yeah. And I'm I'm delivering food, you know, by the gig. And how is that? What's a day in your life? Are, are you doing this like uh, just as a personal door dash or did you sign up with a company? No, I'm signed up with like three different companies ah. to do it. I kind of play the game between some of the companies and, and see who's paying the most at the moment. And then that's how I decide who I'm running with. I'll do lunch for about three hours, like 11 to 2. I'll take a three hour break at home. Then I'll go from like 5 to 10 you know, three to four days a week. Are you worried about your health? I mean, that's a lot of interaction with people, isn't it? It it actually isn't. It's funny. I am gloved up and I have hand sanitizer with me at all times and I'm wearing a mask. Most restaurants have contactless exchanges now and most drop-offs are just dropping outside of somebody's door and ringing the doorbell or knocking on their door and walking away. Um, I work with Woody Creek Distillers, who has created hand sanitizer. They turned their, their distillery operation over into making hand sanitizer in yeah. early March. So I have, a, I have a supply of hand sanitizer in the back of the car 
that I hand off to restaurants as I'm delivering to them so they have some for their people as well. Now, it occurs to me you could have kept your businesses open, modified your approach, and done, you know, something takeout. Yeah. For me, their continuing health and welfare is, is important to me, and they're all doing okay on, on the unemployment with the boost and the benefits um, for now. We're going to keep them at home just because until we've distanced ourselves from this in- initial shutdown and there's been enough of this social distancing, I don't, I don't trust bringing them all together. Is there any fear that one or some or all of your bars will not be able to reopen because of financial circumstances? Are you on the edge or it sounds like you might have a bit of a cushion? I mean, we didn't walk into this with a huge cushion. You know, bars run on on slim margins. I think it's funny, you know, I am a partner in three bars. It doesn't make me a wealthy person. It's, you know, I mean, owning a bar is a fast track to fulfillment, not a fast track to wealth, right? If I, (laughs) it's not going to, I don't have a mansion in Park Hill. But where we were, we immediately, as soon as we found out, we immediately reached out to our landlords, explained our situation. They knew it was coming. They made deals with us. We know that the utilities aren't going to collect on us. Our vendors aren't collecting on us while we're closed here. We had great relationships with all the people that we worked with. So when it came down to the to a time of crisis, everybody worked with us. How is it to see this different side of the food service business? You've gone from pretty fancy bartender making drinks that people have probably not heard of <laughs> to to delivering yeah. food. Yeah, one of my first jobs, you know, I, I had multiple jobs when I was younger. I was a bartender and I was a pizza delivery guy. I was delivering pizza in the evenings and then going to work at nightclubs at night. So, I mean, I've delivered... This is something I did. I mean, God, that was 30, 33 years ago, but I've done it before. You know, for me, it's it's fulfilling a little bit of the hospitality, the need and want to take care of people that I have in the bars. It's amazing watching how stressed the bars and restaurants are. Many times they're surprised to see me because I haven't made a big deal about, about what we're doing. You know, they're surprised to see me show up with a bag from a delivery company, <laughs> you know, and, you know, showing them hospitality and warm greetings and everything. I mean, you can't really see a big smile under under the mask, but it's doing that and doing that with the people that we're delivering to. Everybody all around is very grateful. You know, a lot of the restaurants are stressed and some of them aren't able to handle the to-go volume that they're getting, but that's good. That's a good problem to have. They'll adjust to that. You know, I mean, for now, my biggest worry is what happens once we move forward, once everything opens again. You mean the health concerns? Health concerns, diminished capacity, like, you know, volume of people. Like, I believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on this theory, that once we reopen, the city and county of Denver will have regulations based on our capacity, either at 50% capacity or whatever it is. We write our business plans on 100% capacity. You know, <laughs> we, don't, we don't write it on, on having a half-full room. So, you know, once the Paytech Protection Program money has, has run out, the worry is, the viability of the businesses moving forward, but we'll adapt and, and thrive. We'll be fine. Well, that's really important perspective. And of course, there will be some restaurateurs who may not be fine, and, and we'll see how yeah. that plays out. So, Sean, you'll, you'll be getting back to delivering food today, huh? <laughs> yes, I'll be getting to it at about 11 a.m. The lunch hour. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Take care. Barman Sean Kenyon, who has Williams and Graham, American Bonded, and Occidental. And with those three watering holes closed, he's gotten a part-time gig to try and support his industry and his workers.
The state's unemployment website got an additional wave this week of gig workers, independent contractors, and other self-employed folks, 30,000 of them Monday and Tuesday. That group has qualified for benefits for the first time ever, and they logged onto a system that was already besieged. On Monday, I spoke with an official at the state labor department. He promised things would be better, maybe not glitch-free, but better for these new folks. There may be some delays in getting in, but it should not be anything like our other system had been in the early days of folks filing. The voice there of Phil Spesshart. Well, has that turned out to be the case? Let's ask CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. He's been keeping a close eye on these latest claims. Andy, welcome back. Thank you. And how's the system working with this new onslaught? In the big picture, it's working okay. You know, this is the first time, Ryan, that the state's ever offered unemployment for these gig workers, independents, self-employed. And in just a couple of days, more than 30,000 people have successfully started claims. The website itself seems to be holding up very well. But I've also heard from dozens of people who are having trouble getting their claims through. They're getting rejected. What's the nature of that trouble? Well, they're getting these error messages, and the original error message said, you don't appear to be eligible for pandemic unemployment assistance, but you may be eligible for a standard unemployment insurance claim, telling you basically you need to go try the old system. But this is happening to a lot of people who didn't think they were eligible for regular UI because, again, they're gig workers or independents. They've been told they're not eligible for the other one. Okay, so what would be triggering the error messages? So... It can be confusing. There's a couple causes. One common problem might be that you actually did have some recent income from a regular W-2 job. That's a more traditional setup. Yeah. And the state system can see that. And if it detects the W-2 was filed for you recently, it's going to raise a big red flag and tell you, again, to go apply for regular unemployment. In that case, you know, a lot of people are actually, maybe they didn't realize they had a W-2. They'll be able to go and file Maybe they'll get accepted by the regular system, and if they get rejected by it, then they should be able to go back and apply for this new freelancer unemployment. So that'll help a lot of people. But on the other hand, we're also hearing from a lot of people who don't think that they have a W-2, who weren't aware of having one. And there's a couple things that could be happening there. One is that they may have earlier started a claim in the old system or filed a claim, and that will cause them trouble. If the system sees that you were active in the old system in any way, it's going to it's gonna throw a red flag. Or maybe an employer paid unemployment premiums for them without them actually realizing, which is fully possible. Uh, the American employment system is super complicated, and a lot of people are just finding that out yeah. now. Indeed they are. Tell me more about what's going on with folks who have two types of jobs. Andy, on, on Monday's show, for instance, we met someone who is both a W-2 worker and her own boss. You know. Yeah, let's focus in on that because that seems to be the source of a lot of these problems. Uh, I talked to a 61-year-old woman who makes about $20,000 a year. Half of that comes from a W-2. Half of that comes from a 1099. or Actually, half of that comes from several freelance jobs. Huh. And so she's going to be getting that error message. She needs to go through regular unemployment. She's still struggling with that. Hopefully, she'll be able to get it through. But... Uh, there's another layer of difficulty for these people, and that is that you can only actually collect unemployment based on one of those types of income. So traditionally, unemployment pays you a fraction, a certain portion of your normal wages. Uh, And you would expect for that woman, this would be the full 20,000 a year. 
But actually, she's only going to be able to likely collect that based on the $10,000 a year she makes from her W-2. And that can be really problematic for people who um, who may have only a little bit of money from a W-2 that they've lost. And most of their income comes from the other type. In those cases, those people are still only allowed to collect on the smaller W-2 wages. Yeah. No. The good news is that everyone gets at least $600 a week from emergency benefits. I'm sorry this is so complicated. Ah, uh, well, it's the nature of this story. So the, the point is, uh, for lack of a better term, you can't double dip. You can't go both avenues. But uh, as Andy just said there, uh, all folks apply for those emergency, uh, apply, pardon me, apply. The emergency benefits apply to all of these folks. Uh, boy, my own slips are complicating this further. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining us and explaining this to us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And CPR public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. He's been reporting on joblessness during the pandemic. So stimulus checks have indeed started to arrive for Coloradans. And CPR's Haley Sanchez reports that some people need the money to help them pay their bills this month. Others want to pay it forward. Martin Hershorn worked as a pastry chef at a hotel at the convention center in downtown Denver before it temporarily closed because of the new coronavirus. He says his monthly rent costs more than the $1,200 he expects to get from the federal government. This stimulus bill, that, that's just going to go to rent. That's it. Hershorn is now on unemployment benefits, but only gets about half of what he earned at the hotel. He doesn't have money saved to put down a deposit on a cheaper apartment. He says his rental property company will defer one month's rent. It'll keep me out of the shelter for a month while I kind of like try to figure out what else to do. Like Hershorn, Brianna Hurd of Denver says her check is going straight to rent and other household expenses. It's crappy right now, but I'm also pretty privileged to have a spouse that still has an income. Like things are tight, but it's not unmanageable. Hurd's husband is a teacher with Denver Public Schools. She's a graduate student at Colorado State University and normally nannies on the side to earn extra money. But that's not possible with social distancing. She says she has to spend her stimulus check wisely. I have heard of people saying, like, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy that. And I'm like, well, that's not, that goes straight into bills. It has to. Ed and Andrea Furlong of Evergreen, on the other hand, don't have that problem. The stimulus check is extra for us. And we could use it to go on a nice trip or something. But there's so many people that are in so much need right now that that would just be obscene. They're nearing retirement, have food in a home, Andrea Furlong says she's most concerned about people who don't have those things. So they'll probably donate some of the money to a food bank. They hope to motivate other Coloradans, too. Maybe spurs a few people to think about how this little gift, and for many of us, it's so critical for so many others. If you don't need the money and you can pass it on and, you know, pay it forward. And it's a way to not feel so helpless. There are lots of ways to give, including the state's COVID relief fund. Colorado's Attorney General's office has guidelines on its website about how to vet charities before making a donation. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. School is weird now, and it's possible classrooms may not reopen this fall even. That's according to the Colorado Springs Gazette, citing a call the governor had Tuesday with superintendents. We got to wondering, what does physical education look like these days? Well, on the phone with us, he's PE teacher Murray Wallace of Erie Middle School. Just a few years ago, he was named one of the country's best physical educators. And Murray, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. You are originally from, from Scotland, where you played rugby. 
And so I'm fairly confident I do not detect your accent in some instruction that you sent students recently. Let's put a little power on this. Hey, 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 wait. How low can we go? How low can we go? How low? How low can you go? Hey, okay, so hey, tell me hey, about this hey, video you sent you students, how it captures what it means to do your job right now. <laughs> yeah, that was certainly not me, Ryan. Um, I'm not that um, athletically talented. But, um, you know, it was really just about trying to get the students to give them the opportunities because we don't really know what situation they're in. I don't know if they've got space, if they've got other people we can be active with. And it was really just about trying to give them opportunities to be as active as they possibly can. Um, so I just sent out some video links um, that some other users on Twitter, a great um, PE community on Twitter, had uh, shared with us. Um, so just sent them out and gave the students the opportunity to try something a little bit different. I think that was some hip-hop um, fitness uh, activity. Yeah, indeed. So. so the idea is that you're not connected live to students right now. It's not like PE class happens over a video feed in real time. You send them ideas and hope for the best? Uh, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, Ryan. Um, I know there are some teachers, I think, who have done some live uh, video feeds with their students, uh -huh. um, which can definitely be a challenge. Um, but from, from my perspective... It's really about, you know, recognizing that, you know, very often we don't have any idea what their situation is, whether their parents are there, whether their parents are working, whether their parents have had a situation that's, you know, changed for them and all that type of stuff. We don't understand the stresses and things like that. So for our perspective, it's really about just giving them the opportunity and giving them some resources that they can use to try and um, engage in that physical activity piece uh, throughout the day um, and get those movement breaks in, et cetera, et cetera, just to keep themselves healthy, uh, both mentally and physically. Yeah, I want to pick um, up on something you said there, um, which is throughout the day. W would your advice to parents right now be th that kids should be getting up and moving every, you know, hour or few hours as opposed to concentrating exercise in one lump what what would you say i mean it kind of depends on your goals to a certain extent ryan and some of them will have different goals but you know from a parent perspective um you know when your kids sitting there doing their online learning or whatever um and they've been sitting there for a little bit too long you'll probably notice they start to get a little bit antsy um and you know one thing that's never changed, even with technology, is that we still need to move our bodies. It's really good for us, both mentally and physically. So I would suggest that they, um, you know, every 20 minutes or so, they get them up and move them around, even if it's just walking around the house, going up and down the stairs a few times, going outside and playing with a dog, or going outside and playing some throw and catch or Wait, whatever, every, just to get them every, moving. Every 20 minutes would put it way more frequently than they get at school, I'm thinking, right? <laughs> Uh, yes, it would. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, well, I mean, the thing at school really is, you know, for us, you know, old days physical education used to be like, oh, you know, you've got to get in here and we're going to get you fit and all that type of stuff. And that's not really what it's about. It's really about trying to give them the skills, the confidence and the knowledge that will help them to live a lifelong um, healthily, physically active life. So really the, the, the activity they do in my class in school is not really as important as the other 23 hours and 15 minutes, um, you know, for the other 50 odd weeks of the year um, outside of school. That's really what we're trying to get them to do. And I think this is a great opportunity for them 
you know, to engage in activities that they enjoy um, and really, you know, to try and discover some stuff, learn something new, get creative with it, et cetera, et cetera. You know? Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. In other words, you're not there to groom jocks. You are there to create a lifelong connection to some sort of balance with exercise. You sent your middle schoolers uh, some ideas, walk or bike while remembering social distancing, of course. You also urged them to chillax and breathe in, breathe out, repeat. And you sent them this yoga video. Then we're going to be brave. We're going to be strong. We're going to lift our hearts to the sky. So on an inhale, send your fingertips forward, up and back. Strong here from the base of the spine, we lift up. So this is not just about exertion right now, Marie Wallace. It strikes me that this is also about creating some relaxation in the body too. Absolutely. You know, it's all about that mental health piece, um, which we often forget comes with um, as a side benefit of being physically active. Do you fear that there will be some kids who become less healthy at this time, who become more sedentary, you know, who, who might gain weight? Is that a fear that you have as a physical educator at this moment? I think that's always a, a concern, particularly in, in this day in this day and age. You know, when I when I grew up, you know, it was like if I ever told my my parents I was bored, that was a, the worst mistake you could ever make because I was I was kicked outside whether it was raining or whatever, and told to just go and figure something out. And <laughs> um, but with all this technological advance and all that type of stuff, which is great in some aspects, um, I think you know, and Netflix and Hulu and all these types of things, it's it's really easy to get sucked into that sedentary lifestyle. So I think that's generally a concern from us as physical educators. I think that's been a concern whether it's, you know, a physically distanced learning environment or, um, you know, a regular kind of activity and all that type of stuff. You know, physical inactivity is is one of the four, it's actually the UN says it's the fourth leading cause of death, preventable death globally. Um, and, you know, the other ones are all things that can definitely be... Um, aided by being physically active so i think that's that would be a concern for us as physical educators and you know in a quality physical education program we're really trying to uh, enhance those behaviors that are going to help and lead to that lifelong helpful physical activity you know not just that you know hey i played high school sports type thing and i'm done at 18 type thing you know it's Murray Wallace, physical educator at Erie Middle School in the St. Vrain Valley School District. In 2017, he was named Colorado PE Teacher of the Year. We talked about keeping kids active in the face of COVID-19. Up next, Earth Day. This is CPR News. My name is Bryn, and I live in Denver, and I really respect journalists and the work they do. And I think a big part of a functional society and a functional democracy is the public's access to clear and accurate information. It feels particularly important now to be able to get the news and have access to it and know that it's um, reliable and that I can count on it. And I think CPR does that. So that's why I donated. Today's Earth Day, the 50th one, half a century ago, there were marches in cities across the country. In Denver, hundreds demonstrated in the streets. Students gathered for a teach-in downtown. Here's how CBS News reported it in 1970. Bicycles at the state capitol were a Denver symbol. Auto pollution is a major problem here in the country's 17th most polluted city, so high schoolers pedal to show there's another way to travel. 
Well, this year, the pandemic means there will be no such gatherings. But activists are online bringing attention to clean air, water, and to climate change. Some of them are calling this a now or never moment. So what does the environmental movement look like these days? Is it inclusive enough? And what work remains? We're going to reflect on that with several guests. First off, 17-year-old Liliana Flanagan. She's a high school senior in Grand Junction, and she's one of the Colorado organizers behind Earth Day Live 2020, a streaming event today. Liliana, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Sergio Avila is regional outdoor coordinator for the Sierra Club. He spent years as a conservation biologist and approaches his work as a conservationist with a Latinx perspective. Welcome, Sergio. Gracias. Good morning. Thank you, Ryan. Absolutely. And Twyla Moon is a glaciologist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. Welcome back to the program, Twyla. Yeah, thank you, and happy Earth Day. Oh, happy Earth Day to you. Liliana, I want to know if you were bummed that you had to move everything online and, you know, how you make the most of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, we, we've been planning our in-person event for, for many months. I believe we, if I remember correctly, we started in December. So oh. it was you know, difficult to kind of come to terms with all of this work that we had put in and all this planning and confirmation that we had done to, to now suddenly be something that we had to work twice as hard to change. Um, and I think there's a certain electricity about an in-person event. Um, you know, if you've ever been to to a, a live music concert, you know, it's it's much more enjoyable than just sitting and listening to that, that same song through headphones. So, um, of course, you know, I was personally bummed and, and I know all of us on our team were, um, you know, just knowing that, that we would be able to have that same electricity. Um, but we, I'm still, you know, so proud and so thankful to, to have worked with, with a team that has been able to put together such a fantastic event in as a substitute. So. Yeah, so give me an example of something that you have created online that you think will generate at least some Electricity is the word you've used. So uh, one of the the biggest the biggest things we we wanted this this fiftieth Earth Day to be a celebration of joy. So we wanted to have live musicians and a live fashion show, and you know we we wanted to have to have the the people wearing the clothes walk walk around the audience, and you know we had all the logistics planned out. And as a substitute. What we've done is we have put together a pre-recorded fashion show and invited some musicians that that would have otherwise performed at our in-person event to um, perform live on our live stream, um, which will actually be starting at about 10 a.m. today. Now, why a fashion show? I wouldn't immediately associate that with Earth Day, but I know that fast fashion in particular has quite the carbon footprint. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the fashion show was one, to bring attention to that. But two, um, we wanted to bring attention to indigenous designers, indigenous people. Um, and hopefully um, everyone listening will tune into our, our live stream and you'll see that in, in the fashion show, each um, individual brings attention to an issue that is specifically important to them. And um, a lot of it's focused around social justice um, because climate justice is absolutely intersectional and so the fashion show was a way for us to highlight um for us to highlight you know all of these other issues that are are incredibly important because we wanted our wednesday events to focus on social justice and bringing joy to 
to everybody, even before this pandemic. But I think now it's more important than ever. So it was really just sort of an, an addition so that so that people could could smile and and really have these social justice issues be brought to light. You know, joy is so interesting because I think it's so easy in the face of something like climate change to feel anything but joy. Okay, Sergio, <laughs> my understanding is that you're not too big on official celebrations like Earth Day. What what does conservation activism mean to you? <laughs> um, what I'm not big on is on creating um, these new type of uh, movements. And I want, not Earth Day, Earth Day is old enough, but movements that just become the collection of likes or hashtags or just social media, you know, International Pet Day or things like those. I think Earth Day, um, it's a tremendous celebration and acknowledgement of our connected life to Earth every day. In my opinion, every day is Earth Day. But uh, having a one day to celebrate and highlight precisely the intersection, like Liliana is talking about, of social justice and environmental justice to bring light to issues uh, locally, regionally, internationally, I think it's a worthwhile celebration. Um, I really, really like the fact that Liliana is bringing up joy and passion. Uh, This is not doom and gloom. And I think it's an opportunity Um, not only for new generations, but for other generations to renew their efforts and to start, it's never too late to start efforts um, to to protect Mother Mother Earth and and acknowledge uh, our impact on it. So it sounds to me like you think a lot of activism only results in likes and hashtags and doesn't go far enough. Is that what I hear you saying? Well, I would even say, what is activism? You know, um, uh, activism is, is a very broad way of, of saying something. Uh, if it was, if it was scientists, we would we would value it in papers published or in talks at conferences. So yeah, I I just want that these type of celebrations move beyond just being popular online. Uh, but I think that uh, well thought out efforts like Liliana is describing uh, and bringing up to the forefront social justice is the way to do it. And I and I commend them for that. Well, th- that's a nice way to phrase it. What is activism? And I'd actually like to ask that of Twyla Moon, scientist at CU Boulder. You specifically have a front row seat to sea level rise. How, how do you see activism uh, in your own life, Twyla? Activism has become a concept and a word that is difficult to grapple with as a scientist, Mm. particularly because climate science has become um, quite partisan. Not correctly, I think. That's kind of a deep point of sadness for me is that it is such a partisan issue. Um, Because I see my work as really trying to bring the things that I see as a scientist, which are rapid changes across the Arctic and rising sea levels and changes in droughts and floods in Colorado, trying to bring that information to light and help people see that our future path is not yet decided. And the actions and the activities and policies and business decisions we make have a huge uh, impact on what future we're going to end up on. We're humans are really the ones in control of the dial. So I don't think as my work um, so much as activism work, I really think of it as connecting with people to help them understand what science can tell us and also to be really inspired about how much um, humans 
can make in the difference in which direction we're headed in the future. How do you think, Liana, you will move beyond, uh, as Sergio has put it, hashtags and likes? In other words, when you were planning your Earth Day events, how much did you bake in the idea of, okay, what do people do the next day, you know? Right, absolutely. Well, I think, you know, making this transition to digital organizing has been, you know, a little funky in that way because we've had to really figure out how to balance the the social media, the likes, the comments, the, the hashtags with, you know, engagement. Mm. And um, we, we started to increasingly understand that, having those things as, as tools was going to be really, really important. And I, I completely agree. I think I, I see a lot of, of even student activists, but I see a lot of activism and a lot of, you know, little strikes and rallies put together to, to just be sort of a, a publicity, you know, look at what I've done. And then, you know, there's, there's no end result. And so, you know, we, we wanted to, to either have a, a good call to action to prevent what Sergio was saying from from happening um give me an example of a call to action so on friday um which is the last of our our three days of climate organizing we are having students um come on our our webinar and ask um candidates and already elected officials questions about about their their climate platform so um you know that's an example of, of a call to action you know when with us calling out to our youth saying you know, we want you to participate. You're able to participate. Um, and the beautiful thing about this Wednesday, um, you know, our focus on joy, our, our only call to action is, is really, you know, take care of yourself and, and rejoice in, in all of the works in progress that we've already made. Um, but, you know, to, to engage people, it's, it's hard because we didn't have a big social media presence as a coalition before, and so, you know, trying to build that up while also making sure that it was solely for the purpose of, um, you know, organizing and, and engaging as many people as possible, as opposed to um, sort of just just kind of putting our faces and, and our names and our our work out, um, you know, for the purpose of our ego. I think that was a really interesting balance to strike that we wouldn't have otherwise had to. I think, think what I hear you saying is, is, is making sure that this wasn't just a about publicity, um, but but sort of more meaningful than that. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about how Earth Day has had to go online this year because of the pandemic, the lack of gatherings. Um, And this is a chance to weigh in more broadly on the environmental movement as well. And, you know, I think, Sergio, of the movement being born at a time of troubled race relations in the United States. Again, you work with the Sierra Club, which has been quite influential. But its founder, John Muir, was known for his racism towards Native Americans. Can you talk about how the organization is acknowledging that? And, you know, your own role in making sure the environmental movement is more reflective of America. It sounds like that's something that Liliana has baked into her events. Uh, Reflect on that for me, Sergio. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, and to answer that question, I will start first acknowledging that I am today talking to you uh, from Toono Odom lands, the ancestral lands of the people of the desert in what is known Tucson, Arizona. And it's important to acknowledge uh, whose ancestral lands we live in, on, in order to understand that there's a history, uh, not only a human history, but also the history of water, the history of air and the history of food and where uh, cultures come from. And so, yes, Sierra Club was founded in 1892 
Uh, it's a very old organization. I only started two and a half years ago in 2017, but I have volunteered with the organization since 2004. And what attracted me to Sierra Club was to change my work in actual conservation science. I, I decided to leave my work as a scientist, to work more as an advocate, uh, I'm still a scientist, uh, as an advocate in equity and conservation and, and working to uh, change the narrative, a little bit of conservation uh, that might focus only on recreation, outdoor recreation, um, or just limited values in conservation. Uh, however, Sierra Club right now acknowledges its history and problematic uh, foundation that actually initiated and perpetuated inequities in the conservation movement. But I don't mean to say that Sierra Club started the conservation movement. The conservation movement, um, organized or non-organized, comes from indigenous communities all over uh, doing the Earth Day work every day. Uh, and so it is uh, the, the, the goals of Sierra Club to acknowledge our history, to acknowledge some of these problems and to address these inequities. We know that it's not perfect, uh, but it is a concerted and conscientious effort uh, to change and lead what is happening, and, and I believe in this in this in this effort. Twyla, we have about a minute left. Uh, I'd like to focus briefly on climate change. So you know, the panel of UN scientists gave the world about a decade to keep warming below 1.5 degrees. What do you think is the single most important thing, policy-wise or individual action-wise, to stem the tide of warming, Twyla? Well, it's interesting here in this time of climate change, we're, of course, talking to you now from our different homes because of, we're in a pandemic. And this pandemic has given us some important language and cultural understanding. We understand that now we take action now, staying in our homes and protecting ourselves to flatten the curve so that we see lesser impacts into the future over the next coming weeks or months. Well, it turns out we need to do the same thing with climate. We need to take action now to flatten the climate curve. And this is something where each person um, needs to look at their own personal sphere, sphere of influence and say, am I the person in the house who's cooking? I'm going to cook more vegetarian and grains. Am I the person in the house who pays the electric bills? I'm going to sign up to um, get my electricity from renewables. Or maybe you have a church group or a school group or you're a business owner or a policymaker and you have a really large sphere of influence. I think it's people individually seeing where they can make a difference and doing that. And well, taking the, action, it, I, it's the way to help us move past kind of the, the climate blues. It's fascinating, the climate blues. It's fascinating to think of what people are trying to achieve in the pandemic as applicable to other concerns. Thanks so much to all three of you for being with us on this Earth Day. I really appreciate it. So you heard from Twyla Moon, glaciologist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder. Also Liliana Flanagan, 17-year-old environmental organizer and high school senior in Grand Junction. And Sergio Avila, regional outdoor coordinator for the Sierra Club. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Open the windows and turn up the Ode to Joy Friday at 5 on CPR Classical. Honor our medical workers and first responders with listeners all across Colorado in Beethoven's epic triumph of the human spirit. Turn up and share the Ode to Joy Friday at 5 only on CPR Classical. 
More at CPR.org. Art thrives when people can come together and experience it, but that's basically impossible with coronavirus. CPR's Alexandra McMahon reports that even as artists across the state are reeling, they have each other's backs. Kevin Sewell has been a tattoo artist for the past seven years, but when his boss at the Denver shop End of Days told Sewell and his colleagues they couldn't tattoo anymore... That day was uh, just awkward. We had to put up a bunch of paper over the windows, and so it, uh, it felt kind of empty that entire day. This, this is what we've all been doing and expected to do for the rest of our lives. Like, there's no retirement plan. There's, there's no stopping tattooing. You, you stop when you're dead. Sewell immediately applied for a grant through the Colorado Artist Relief Fund, a pool of money from several arts organizations in Denver and on the state level created in response to the pandemic. But he couldn't wait to find out if he got it. I was only able to sit home for about a week, and I went and applied for a job at uh, King Supers by me. He ended up getting the job at King Supers, but then found out the Artist Relief Fund would give him $1,000. So what did he decide? I have a job now. It's not as as much as I was making, but I bet you somebody else needs it more. I mean, I get goosebumps. If that is not just reflection of empathy and generosity. Tariana Navas-Nievas is the director of cultural affairs for Denver Arts and Venues, and she was on the receiving end of Kevin Sewell's response. Before Denver Arts and Venues joined the Colorado Artist Relief Fund, they had already repurposed grant money to help local artists impacted by COVID-19. We moved very quickly, I believe. We were like one of the first agencies in the nation to respond with an emergency relief fund for individual artists. And in less than 12 hours, we had received 295 applications. She realized they needed to expand the fund if they were going to keep up with the need. So she called up her friend, Louise Martirano, who runs the nonprofit art center in Denver, Redline. Redline had been surveying artists in the community to gauge how big of an impact COVID-19 is having on their livelihoods. Artists are reporting uh, in the next 30 to 60 days an average loss of income of about $3,500. But truly, you know, I've seen everything up to $20,000 of loss of income. Navas Nievas adds that out of all the applications they received for the Denver Fund, 68% of the artists said they had no other source of income. The other major player in the Colorado Artist Relief Fund is the state agency Colorado Creative Industries. Once they came on board, people all across the state could apply for assistance, like this guy. Right before we got on the phone here, I was actually just filling out a little uh, online artist relief grant to see if we can help apply for any sort of relief for the gallery. My name is Matt Goss, and I'm the owner of Uncanny Valley Art Gallery. Which is in Grand Junction. And since the stay-at-home order, Uncanny Valley's doors have been closed. Goss describes his gallery as commission and censorship-free. I often tell them if they're brave enough to make it, I'm brave enough to show it for them. And artists get to keep 100% of the sales they make at his gallery. Uncanny Valley's fifth anniversary is this month, and Goss says he's bummed they couldn't celebrate. It's really thrown a wrench in our system, too, because we are a member-operated gallery. They all pay a monthly fee to help keep the place open. Uh, Any relief I get for the gallery would be passed directly on to the members. Right now, we're just trying to survive this. 
According to estimates from Redline, there is a $187,000 need right now in arts communities outside the metro area. And when looking at the whole state, that need is closer to a million dollars. But the Colorado Artists Relief Fund isn't big enough to fill that need yet. And as of Tuesday, they only had enough money to process fewer than half of the applications they'd received. There's a chance federal money could help fill in the gaps. Margaret Hunt is the director of Colorado Creative Industries. She says the state just got $750,000 from the National CARES Act. As soon as we draw down that federal funding, we're required to get it out the door in 30 days. So it's going to be a really fast turnaround. We're going to provide grants of $5,000 to small and medium-sized organizations statewide that have budgets of a million dollars or less because we think those are the organizations that are the most vulnerable. Hunt worries the window to help is closing for some of those vulnerable organizations. I've already heard from organizations that have closed, like uh, Southern Colorado Repertory Theater in Trinidad. When COVID-19 precautions started to go in place, Southern Colorado Repertory Theater decided it would be best to stop rehearsals for their upcoming production of the Broadway comedy Social Security. Gloria Hall is the president of SCRT's board. At one point, we had uh, May 15th as a possible reopening. And, you know, as things went along, we've now pushed it out and notified our patrons that we hope to be in production again in September. Hall says the theater has made the hard call to lay off most of their staff and completely forego a summer show season. In recent years, there's been a big push in Trinidad to bolster the city's creative district and attract artists with affordable housing through the state's Space to Create program. And that's also reflected at the theater. Hall says the last couple seasons have been a success. It's, you know, the only only theater around for, for miles and miles. And the number of patrons attending the plays seem to grow each year. But now she's not sure what the long-term economic impacts will look like for SCRT. And that uncertainty seems to resonate across the board. There's also a domino effect happening with existing grants and donations being repurposed as relief aid, according to Louise Martirano. The summer is typically a very slow time for funding. And so you see like summer art markets and you see a lot of opportunities for people to purchase art. Well, that is being decimated right now and having to be replaced by relief funds and philanthropic dollars, which means that when we go to the philanthropic dollars when we typically would in the fall, that money may not be there anymore. Making that road to recovery even longer. But Tariana Navas-Nieves with Denver Arts and Venues sees hope in this time too. People may think that arts is like the cherry on top, that arts are that extra. And what we know historically is that the arts help us get through the hard times. And that's what we're seeing every day. We've seen artists continue to create and inspire, even though that they are in pain, that they are struggling. So now is the time to really show up. And it's definitely been really inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News.
Finally today, singer-songwriter Erica Chambers used to be a demo singer in Nashville. Now she performs in Louisville, the band Elmer, and the isolation of COVID-19 can get to her. I have a pretty bad anxiety disorder, and when it gets bad, I sing. Erica Chambers singing Angel from Montgomery in honor of legendary songwriter John Prine, who passed away earlier this month due to COVID-19. Chambers wanted to help others find comfort through music, especially children. So she wrote a song full of hope and encouragement, then got on Facebook and asked families to record their kids singing the parts to form a virtual choir. Here is a sneak listen to the finished product. Erica Chambers and the Quarantine Choir singing We Are Strong. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.